today's forecast is looking like a high chance of pizza. Stay in an order. Domino's Hawaii, we deliver aloha in any kind weather. The Mothership Podcast is sponsored by Hawaii Surrogacy Center. Start your family with Hawaii's leading surrogacy agency. podcast Steph Noli and Brooke here all with you and uh, we have a question for all you listeners out there are you getting enough sleep okay I'm going to tell you right now I am not getting enough sleep I think you guys already know that Brooke and Noles I'll tell you that I'm always so tired um, it's just really tough with all the schedule juggling and you know waking up early dropping off the kids and then getting off of work late um, what about for you guys Noli and Brooke Yep, same. I think as females too, right? Um, females and mothers, um, for sure, have experienced sleep deprivation. How about you, Brittany? Yep, same thing here. I that's an area that I have to work on <laughs> the most, I think. And I also feel like I'm guilty of at the end of the day when everyone's sleeping and I finally have a like it's quiet and I know I should just go to sleep too, but I feel like that's my sliver of me time, and I know it's not the right time to do it so I, i'm guilty of that and getting tired the next day and it's, it's a vicious cycle um, i'm i'm right there with you bro <laughs> i think and then i think a lot of people probably listening are right there too because it's like your moment of like almost like sanity where you can kind of like just unwind but it's probably not good to push the envelope right and then try to stay awake but we're gonna find out more about that and, uh, you know, if you thought that you're the only one not getting enough sleep, obviously you're not alone. We're feeling the same way. And a recent study shows that Hawaii as a state, it, you know, residents have the most trouble sleeping one of those states. It also says Hawaii had the most internet searches for insomnia, lack of sleep, sleep deprivation, and sleep apnea. So we're going to learn more about that. Joining us to help explain why and how we can catch more disease is Dr. Ronson Sato, the lead physician for the Kuikini Pulmonary Sleep Center. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Sato. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Appreciate yeah. being here. We were we're we are digging for answers. We're going to look to you for some help <laughs> uh, to get some much needed sleep. So so basically on average how much sleep should a person get? Yeah, so that's a great question and I get that question from a lot of patients, a lot of people. Um nationally the average is about 7 hours. Oh. And right now a lot of studies, a lot of surveys will define insufficient sleep as anyone who gets less than seven or eight hours. Um, but I will oftentimes tell my patients that although that's ideal, what you mentioned um, about having to balance everything that's going on in your life with work, with other kind of social responsibilities, family responsibilities, there's so much other things, right? You, wanna, you want that me time to exercise and to enjoy and to relax. And so it doesn't allow for a lot of time um, for sleep. And I think that's a common problem um, in our society, not just Hawaii, but in our society. You know, we focus so much on everything that we need to do when we're awake and we have to be active. And in the past, if you slept a lot, you were considered lazy and that's time that you could be doing other things. But I think there's a shift now that there's much more understanding and appreciation that sleep is important. Right. Sleep is important for your health, for your well-being, uh, physical and mental. And so there's much more focus and attention spent on that. And so I'll tell my patients that, you know, it's really a matter of how much you feel will be optimal for you to feel your best, um, to function your best. And it's different from person to person. Um, but as you alluded to, there are studies that show different amounts of sleep um, can also affect cognitive function, memory, mood. And so in general, 
a lot of the studies show that there's a clear cutoff when people sleep five, four hours, um, even if they feel like they, they can do their best, feel their best, perform their best. So I'll try to tell people, you know, even if you feel that that's something that you still run on, uh, you can run on four or five hours and do your best. I try to push a little bit more, but I think in reality, it comes down to what people really feel they can, they can provide for themselves and sustain. And then in a way, even more importantly, it's the quality, right? So just as important as quantity, but maybe more so is the quality of sleep that you're getting. And so that's, um, in a lot of ways, much more important than just the quantity. <clears throat> I, I feel like, and I don't know, Brooke and Oli, if you guys would agree, but I feel like I'm always chasing like good sleep. Like I, I feel like I can't get good sleep. And so, and it's been quite a long time. Um, and I'm sure there are a lot of factors to blame <laughs> you know, and reasons why. Yeah, right. Right. Uh, but, and the importance, as you just said, is, is there. Um, so, I mean, like, should I like take naps? Is that something bad to do? Do you want to get it all, all in a one whole package of sleep? Right. Yeah. So it's a good question. I mean, um, in general, if you could consolidate your sleep, right, put it all together overnight, that would be ideal just because we cycle through from awake to shallow sleep to deeper sleep. And it's that deep sleep which is usually the more restorative sleep that um, helps us to feel our best. And so when you break it up, your body, your brain doesn't get to get into that deep stage of sleep. And it's, it's normal for us to cycle from awake to shallow sleep to deeper sleep every 90 to 90 minutes to two hours. And so when you break up your overnight sleep and get less of that, and a lot of us will do that because you know we gotta get up early in the morning and we want to stay up late and do the things we want to do when we have that that free time, that alone time, that quality time. And so a lot of times the overnight sleep suffers and we supplement that with a daytime nap, right? A power nap, um, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour. But that's not enough time to get that deep sleep because it, the body, the brain normally takes a certain amount of time to get there. And so when you break it up like that, you're not going to be able to get as much of that deep sleep that's restorative. Yeah, it's sleep, it's shallow sleep during the day, but it's not going to be as good if you could have just cut out that nap and added that half an hour or 45 minutes to the overnight sleep. And now you've got six hours of, of sleep continuously, and you had a chance to get maybe three cycles of deep sleep instead of just the two, right? Because you cut off your sleep at five hours. So that's the thought as to why it's, it's better to consolidate sleep altogether rather than to break it up because there's this normal amount of time that the brain needs to get into that deep sleep. Now, when people are sleep deprived though, studies show that they can get into that deeper sleep faster because you know the body is, is awesome and smart and it tries to adapt. So when you're not getting enough sleep in general, especially deep sleep, people can get into deep sleep faster, but it's a sign of sleep deprivation. And not, it's not necessarily a healthy thing, it's because your body's craving sleep, but that also might manifest with feeling more sleepy, right? Being tired. Um, and when you wake up, you may not feel as refreshed because it's a sign that your body still needs more sleep. And so, yeah, I think the quality, the quantity, and your sleep habits, your pattern of how you're sleeping. When you mentioned that you're searching for, for good sleep, right? You're looking for that good sleep. Um, I think people have to understand like, you know, what does it mean to have good sleep, right? Some of it is quantity is sufficient to feel your best, to feel your, to function your best, um, but also provide that quality so that you can get into that deep sleep, right? The restorative sleep and, and also avoid the, the habits and the bad habits a lot of times that can hinder that. And we may not realize it, but sometimes it's taking a nap because that reinforces not sleeping as, as much overnight. But we feel like we're napping because we're not getting enough sleep overnight. But the nap reinforces that short sleep the next night. So we do what we need to a lot of times to, to get by and you know perform the things we need. Um, but again, when people wanna to try to change that, uh, it, it requires that kind of a 
conscious change, right? It's it's something that they may not realize, but um, something they can do. Um, but something as simple as changing your sleep habits and your hygiene can do that. Really helpful to know, um, Doctor Sato. I also wanted to to ask about shift shift workers. How yeah. do or people who have trouble just sleeping? How do you help them, or what is there out there to help them? For shift workers, um, yeah. So that's already a tough uh, situation to be in because that's going against the the natural rhythm that people you know normally want to sleep, right? People, a lot of animals, right? We're in that animal group um, just by nature. Our bodies, our genetics are made to be more awake and alert uh, during the day when the sun's up and we get sleepier when the sun goes down. So to perform and be able to function and, and think clearly and be alert and, um, you know, against that normal cycle is tough. But like a lot of other things, um, people can train themselves and condition themselves to, um, to go against that natural um, rhythm. So there's you know, typically two systems that drive sleep. One is the circadian rhythm. So we are more alert during the day and more sleepy at night. And so that's just natural, right? The other is the drive to sleep. So based on your sleep amount. So from the time we get up, we start this meter of sleepiness starts going up. And so typically that's in the morning, right? So let's talk about say someone with a normal sleep schedule, like the typical. So you sleep overnight, wake up in the morning. And as soon as you wake up, that drive to sleep starts going up, that hunger to sleep. And usually it's also coinciding with the daytime, right? The sunlight schedule. And as you get further and further up and you're getting towards the afternoon and the evening, that hunger to sleep, that drive to sleep is still increasing. And it's also coinciding with the circadian rhythm. But at nighttime, now the sun goes down. So the circadian rhythm, part of the brain that's saying, okay, it's time to get sleepy, also starts to happen when you're at the peak of your sleepiness because you've been up since the morning, right? That's also why when you nap, that drive to sleep goes down. And so napping makes it harder to sleep at night because you've satisfied some of that hunger. You want to save that for the overnight sleep if that's your goal, right? This is for people who have trouble falling asleep or staying asleep. That's why the nap can hurt that, that drive. And so it's usually peaking out at the top at nighttime when it's also matching with your skating rhythm. So you get sleepy, fall asleep, the drive to go to sleep goes down, sunlight, sun comes up, morning time, and now you wake up and you start that process again. Well, on a shift for a shift worker, the circadian rhythm is still trying to get you to sleep at night, but you have to break that cycle. You have to fight the sleepiness, right? And stay up during the night, fight that circadian rhythm. And we do things to try to help that bright light, right? Las Vegas, a lot of light because that's a natural stimulus for the brain to fool the brain to, to be awake, right? It, you're trying to fool it to think it's daytime. So you're trying to use that, being active, caffeine, other things, right? Try to fight that sleepiness. So you save that drive until the morning, right? So you gotta, and that's a trained thing. You've got to condition yourself. And eventually, because you're so sleepy, you get through the night, you get to the morning, and now you can go to sleep, even though the sun's coming up, it's the morning because you're so sleepy. And that drive to sleep is what allows you to sleep during the day, right? Against the normal circadian rhythm. People with shift work, I mean, it's a lot of studies that show they just don't sleep as well, despite that, despite trying to train your body, because again, it's against the natural, your natural body's natural system, right? To sleep. So over during the course of the day, it's hard to sleep, you know, seven, eight hours, it's sunny. And of course, there's a lot of other things going on. Um, you know, there's noise, things are going on, it's during the day. So the environment also probably makes it difficult to sleep that amount of time. Um, and then usually after less time, less amount of time sleeping, you kind of start waking up, right? And sometimes you might supplement that with a nap again until it's evening and it's time to go to work and stay alert again. So some of those things um, to try to help circadian rhythm um, shift workers is definitely, you know, trying to power through, staying awake, doing what you got to do, whatever that, that occupation is. Um, bright light, being active, caffeine, trying to stay awake at those, those times you need to. 
but you don't want to do it so close to the morning when you're starting to wind down, where now you're preparing yourself for sleep. You gotta, gotta really optimize that sleep environment, right? Dark, um, a really dark environment because now you're trying to tell the brain that, hey, it's you're tricking it. It's bedtime now. It's nighttime in a way. So you want to make it comfortable, whether it's air conditioning or cool, whatever you like, and what you feel you sleep the best in, whatever environment you sleep the best in. That's what you're trying to create, right? So comfortable, dark, um, blackout, you know, curtains, um, and trying to make sure that people around you or the environment as conducive to sleep as possible, right? So you can get that that time again, because you, your body, your brain will still get what it needs, and if you didn't get enough sleep, you will it will try to get that sleep even if it's during the day, right? But just again, in general, it's a lot more difficult to maintain that. Um, and you know, it's harder, I think in general, um, shift workers, they have more, more challenges with other kind of medical conditions as well, just because of that extra stress on their bodies. Yeah. In terms of, uh, cardiovascular disease, even, um, lifespan typically. And again, it, it varies right from person to person, how long they can do that. Hopefully you have an occupation where you know, there's a shift in night and days and um, most occupations don't, you know, keep you working that overnight shift, even five days a week, right? Sometimes they try to reduce that. But, but um, so doctor, so generally um, sleep is, um, you know, the amount of sleep you get can affect, directly affect your lifespan. Oh, for sure. Yes. Um, it's a lot harder because a lot of the studies looking at sleep time and lifespan, it's hard to pinpoint what risk factors are gonna be the predictors, right? Because there's so many things going on in a person's life, whether you know it's the amount of sleep or their diet and their exercise or what they're doing occupationally, but across the board, um, all comers, when you don't get enough sleep, so again, that's the, why insufficient sleep, right? Inadequate sleep is such a big thing um, people who sleep less than seven hours, six hours. So it's, it's an extreme, right? It's this, <laughs> but it's a lot of people, right? It's kind of like a bell-shaped curve where people on one extreme where they don't get enough sleep, very little, and those even who sleep a lot actually have shorter lifespans. So it's not a clear-cut direct relationship because people who sleep 10 hours, you know, you may know those people who say, I need to sleep nine, 10 hours to feel my best. But there are also studies that show even people who sleep too much, right? And that's kind of defined as nine, 10 hours or more have shorter lifespans as well. Now, is it because they have other health conditions that make it harder to sleep or that make them more sleepy, right? Because there's a lot of things that go into that kind of natural drive to sleep. And so, you know, it's not a clear cut answer, um, but just in general, we know that sleep time has this... Um, association with with uh, lifespan longevity so again it comes down to trying to do what you can to make sure that you get that optimal amount of time to feel your best and making sure the quality is right optimal yeah dr sato i wanted to a couple of things so thanks for that because i think if we could recap for the listeners um sleep hygiene right you're talking about sleep hygiene so things if you can control it um, sleeping in a dark room, um, trying to limit the device and screen time, you know, a couple hours before bedtime, right? Um, yep. Trying to eat, not eat right before bed or snack on something. So your digestion is kind of settling down. You're not doing so much work there. Um, and I think also electromagnetic fields, like just trying to not sleep next to all the whole charging device station and all of that, I think affects sleep from some of the studies I've seen. Um, but thank you for uh, sleeping in a cool room. I think that helps if you're able to do that. I think that's super helpful. Um, I have a question if I could switch gears a little bit about sleep sure. apnea. Yeah. And, um, you know, so my, there's people in my family, my husband just, you know, just trying to deal with that, just getting a CPAP machine also. Can you talk about for the folks who might not know or someone who might suspect that they are the, someone they love or sleep next to? <laughs> has sleep apnea and what, how important it is to really address it. Yeah, so um, so sleep apnea, common 
problem. Probably majority of the patients I see, uh, sleep patients, um, you know, it's for suspected sleep apnea or diagnosed and just trying to optimize treatment. So um, sleep apnea is a sleep disorder that's characterized by recurrent upper airway collapse. And that results in less airflow, less oxygen, and that's what disrupts a person's sleep. Um, and it's based on anatomy. You know, a lot of people, there was this misconception that it only happens in men, overweight, loud snoring. Um, I think that's, uh, that's something we know now that it's not just in that kind of a person. That's not what you're looking for. That's kind of a obvious, like clear cut, high risk. Yes, that person probably does have sleep apnea and they should get checked out. But we know now that um, you know it's not always that kind of a, a presentation. It can be much more subtle. Um, and again, it's a problem of the airway being small and crowded. And when I say airway, I mean the jaw size, the vertical height between the palate and the tongue. And if the back of the throat is crowded, and a lot of people, you could take a look in the mirror, um, in your bathroom, just open it up as wide as you can, tongue in your mouth, and see if you can see the back of your throat. Because a normal size airway, you should be able to see the uvula that dangles down, the seam of the, the mouth, um, and all in the back of the airway. Okay. Um, when the uvula is partially obstructed, it's mildly crowded. When you can barely see it and the tongue is kind of close to the roof of the mouth, that's pretty severe. And then we have some people where the tongue is kind of up against the roof of the mouth and you can't see much at all. I right, can't see the back of the throat. And a lot of that, again, is it's all anatomic. It's not something that happened overnight. It was because once someone stops growing and the jaw and the palate and all that stops, it's fused, the bony structures of the airway is determined. Um, that's what predisposes that airway to being small. Uh, when we're awake, no problem, because while we're awake, the muscles are alert, activated, and we can breathe easily. Um, people don't snore when they're awake. Snoring is the sound of turbulent air trying to get to this collapsing soft tissue as you sleep because the muscles are relaxing, right? It only happens when you sleep because the muscles relax, it starts to obstruct that airway. And just like breathing through a smaller airway, breathing through a straw is more difficult, your body's gonna have to work harder. So you, I hope that that um, audio came through pretty, but it's like a vibratory floppy sound, right? This where now, the airway is tight and the body's working harder and the brain says, hey, you gotta wake up. Either you're working too hard or you're not getting enough air for oxygen. So the brain says, wake up, you release adrenaline, heart rate shoots up, blood pressure shoots up and you shift in your sleep, you need to more shallow sleep. So the airway opens up so you can regain adequate airflow and you have this gasping opening of the airway and you can regain adequate airflow and oxygen, but you disrupt your deep sleep, which is where we get the restorative refreshing benefits of sleep. But the brain will always fight to breathe which is what we want, but it disrupts that sleep. So you can regain adequate airflow. But because you're still tired and sleepy, you drift back down to a deeper sleep, the muscles relax, and it collapses, and it keeps repeating itself over and over throughout the night. So the end result is people wake up and they may not feel as refreshed as they could feel, and may not have as much energy. Um, snoring, again, is a, a common symptom, maybe one that's the most noticeable, but people were, will also mention sounds like they stop breathing and they can't hear that snoring anymore. Um, that's concerning. Waking up um, for unknown reasons, because a lot of people don't have a bed partner that can be around to hear a person snore. So waking up for unknown reasons, waking up to have to urinate. Um, a lot of people don't realize that can be a symptom of sleep apnea because of that surge in adrenaline and that surge in blood pressure. That, that spike is what causes the kidneys now to try to relieve that pressure. So people wake up and they got to go urinate. Um, and so those are all pop, you know, symptoms that it's hard to know what's causing that. I mean, especially with the snoring and um, creates where it sounds like you stop breathing, right? And for the person, they can't know what's going on because they're sleeping. And even a, a bed partner, somebody observing you, they're not monitoring you every night throughout the night. Um, so it's a challenge because it's, when it comes to sleep, it's hard to get a reliable history because unlike other kind of symptoms, a person sleeping, Bed partners aren't watching every second, every hour. They don't know what's going on with your sleep and airflow and oxygen. Um, but I think the most common things, snoring, periods where it sounds like you stop breathing, um, you're waking up to urinate, headaches in the morning. That can be because oxygen levels are dropping while you sleep. And of course, the daytime symptoms.
symptoms, right? But those are not specific, right? Waking up tired, unrefreshed, having less energy. Um, if I don't sleep tonight, I'll be tired tomorrow. So it doesn't mean I have sleep apnea. So it's always harder because the tired and sleepiness, is it a problem of, again, um, sleep hygiene and habits? And are you looking at your iPad? Are you getting enough sleep? So a lot of people will feel like, oh, well, you know, I work, I work hard and I'm, I'm tired of, you know, from the things I do. And it's because I don't get enough sleep, which could be true, right? But the thing with sleep apnea is nothing, not even more sleep is going to help that because your body's battling to fight to breathe, right? Every night, 365 nights a year for years until you, you help that problem, right? And so you've got to detect it and you've got to treat it. And do you see that because um, there's a long-term effect? So when you're saying you're working harder, that means your your organs and your muscles, your brain's not resting, things aren't recovering like it should be. So is that why it can shorten life? And I want to ask one more also yeah, laughing yeah, because I feel like there should be a terminology called secondhand sleep apnea. Because if you're the partner, <laughs> the, the it affects partner like everyone else's sleep. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's but, um, where the insomnia comes in or the insufficient sleep, right? The second hand effects, right? But um, right, for the sure. long-term effects, are there, does it shorten your life if you don't address it? Uh, it? It can in a kind of indirect way, right? So quality of life gets affected because your sleep quality is not great and wake up unrefreshed and less focus, concentration, memory, mood, those things can get affected. Um, and for sure, that's important. But there's you know, dramatic evidence now that shows when people don't treat, especially you know, moderate, so severe sleep apnea, when this is happening frequently, or oxygen levels are, are dropping really low, um, it can increase the risk of high blood pressure, irregular heart rhythms, and of course the big ones like heart attack and stroke. Um, other disorders as well, weight gain, diabetes, um, mood disorders, even Alzheimer's now is associated with sleep apnea. Which, when you think about it, makes sense. If your body's working hard to fight to breathe, to maintain adequate oxygen throughout the night, every night, um, you know, sleep is supposed to be the time your body can rest and recuperate and recover. But instead, it's like you're running a marathon, right? You're 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 working hard to breathe, and it's just there's never that time to to do that, right? Which is the problem. So yeah, dramatic evidence that. Um, cardiovascular issues, um, you know, a lot of other health conditions associated with um, not identifying or treating sleep apnea. Uh, so that's why it's so much more important. You know, Dr. Sato, I feel like, yeah. you know, whenever I, um, so my husband also suffers from sleep apnea, which is the kind of like the, and, and Noli's as well, which is kind of like um, leads to my next question. I feel like it's so common, you know, I, yeah. feel like it, I mean, and I mean, it's Hawaii, um, you know, kind of one of the states where you're finding a, a, a lot of that? I mean, are there statistics that, that you can share with us? Even when it comes to, I know you said it doesn't matter if you're a woman or man or overweight or whatnot, but then when it comes to gender too, is it like men, statistics show men more likely to have sleep, sleep apnea? And, and where does Hawaii rank when it comes to, you know, sleep apnea? How common is it? Yeah, so it's a good question. Um, you know, not aware of the state-to-state -state rates because a lot of that also gets affected by being overweight and obesity, right? And so Hawaii ranks pretty um, pretty well in that regard, right? Because of the lifestyle, exercise. Um, so in terms of obesity, not as bad as a lot of other states, but sleep apnea is higher um, for us because of the major, I guess the high percentage of Asians that live in Hawaii. And so when they look at studies looking at different um, ethnicities and the incidence of sleep apnea, well, one of the more lifestyle things that risk factors are is obesity. But in terms of ethnicity, Asians have a, a high rate. And this is um, even being normal weight because of the, again, the anatomic structures, right, for Asians. So usually flatter faces, um, different jawline. And so there's a lot of Asians who are normal weight and can have sleep apnea. And being overweight just adds more, um, a higher risk of having that, right? So there's a lot of studies actually um, in Asia that are being done. So because 
you know, again, we used to think you have to be overweight, obese, and snoring loud, and that's, you know, really the, the kind of person you're concerned about for sleep apnea. But we know now you can be slender, um, normal weight, appropriate weight, exercise, all these things, but it's all about your anatomy. And so Asians will have this anatomic kind of um, disadvantage because of the angle of the jaw and flatter faces. And so that kind of anatomy is what puts um, normal, appropriate weight Asians at risk. Um, and so in general, men, I mean, across the board, higher um, than women, but at the perimenopause and postmenopausal age, actually sleep apnea is diagnosed more in women than men. And it's the changes in weight, it's the changes in, um, with hormones. Um, and I'm sure some of it is a lot more um, understanding and the uh, detection now. But um, yeah, so that's something that I think a lot of people are surprised about when it comes to women versus men. But at that later um, age range, more women are being diagnosed with men. Wow, wow, that that is so interesting about the uh, facial yeah. features. I would not, never have known that, you know. Right. Oh, but, you yeah, know I uh... mean, and I can speak from um, personal experience, but you know, and for the listeners out there, and it's so it's so key to um you know pick up on these red flags because um that's when you should go and seek help. Like if they're gasping for air and struggling to breathe, that is a big red flag, especially if it's happening consistently. And right. if they're tired because they're not getting, you know, adequate sleep, I mean, that's a time right. to seek help. Am I missing any other red flags out there? And the reason why I bring this up too, just to explain to the listeners is because there's a sleep center at Kokini that can uh, offer you help and you can take it away from there. So let's start off with the red flags first. Yeah. So red flags, I mean, you mentioned the, the big one. So um, snoring periods where it sounds like someone stops breathing, gasping, waking, um, you know, that's always much more concerning for sleep apnea. Not many other things causes that. So um, again, the daytime sleepiness, naps, dozing, hard to, hard to say what that's from, but that's where a lot more uh, attention has to be put into, are you getting sufficient sleep, um, you know, habits, all those things. Another big one, um, I think that becomes very important is the more immediate concern. So if you're sleepy at times when you don't want to be, um, conversations, you know, public places, driving, right? I mean, things that put you in more immediate danger, that's a red flag because obviously it's a danger to yourself, other people around you. Um, but the brain has been, you know, made to, to, to automatically try to keep us alert at the times when we want to be. That we, you know, and to have to fight and struggle to do that, to stay awake at those kinds of times, that's a red flag, right? So um, that's a more immediate danger. And of course, um, so I, I think those are the big ones. Um, if you have cardiovascular issues, so history of you know, heart disease, stroke, heart attack, high blood pressure, irregular heart rhythms, because we said how sleep apnea is associated with those more life-threatening, life-altering consequences, if that runs in your family, um, that's another big one where, and you've got some of that other, those symptoms of sleepiness, snoring, even more so, because those other consequences, those medical conditions are genetic, and so is sleep apnea. It's very uncommon for just one person in the family to have sleep apnea, because it's about anatomy, and that's something we share with our parents, or siblings, or children. So again, somebody has to have inherited it, right, from somebody, their, their parents. So we got that history. It's all about prevention, right? We want to try to detect it, treat a person, help them to feel better, more refreshed, more energy at that time, but also prevent those other more serious, again, quality of life changes, but life-altering consequences, right? So um, I think people want to keep that in mind as well. But um, yeah, I think it comes down to how do we detect and treat sleep apnea? Well, the gold standard is doing a sleep study. And here at Kuokini Sleep Center, that's what we do, right? So that's um, uh, number one is detection. And the way to do that, there are home sleep studies and there's an in-lab sleep study. And those are the two options um, right now. And there's different benefits um, and advantages and disadvantages between the two. 
Um, but I think the, the, the big thing is it's about trying to detect whether this is going on when you sleep. Obviously, the nice thing about the home study is you get equipment, you take it home, and you'd be able to sleep with this on your own. You'd come into the sleep center. Our technicians here teach you how to put on this equipment, make sure that the person is comfortable. Take it home, put it on before bed, turn it on, and it reports through the night. Now, the home studies are only um, looking for sleep apnea. They're not used to look for other kinds of sleep disorders, right? So if sleep apnea is a primary concern, perfect. Home study, take it home, put it on. It's in the comfort of your own bed, familiar environment, wear whatever you want to wear, and there's less stuff on you that you have to put on. And then at the morning when you're done, turn it off, take it all off, and then you bring it back to the center and we'll look at that data. That's looking for sleep apnea um, based on your breathing and if you're having episodes of reduced airflow oxygen. Um, and you're, the ordering physician uh, can go over the results with you. So at the sleep center, we interpret that data, um, come out with this report that basically explains, was it diagnostic? Do you have mild, moderate, severe sleep apnea? Or do we need to get that better test, uh, more detailed test? And that's the in-lab sleep study. So in that case, a person has to stay overnight in the sleep center, which again, people don't always want to do that. But some people like um, with Noli and Brooke, and if they've got husbands with sleep apnea, they might want to do the sleep study away from home because now they can actually have a more peaceful environment, right? The whole idea is that you want to be able to sleep. And so we monitor sleep pattern now, airflow, oxygen, heart rate, leg movements. We're looking for anything that can disrupt sleep quality. The advantage of doing the in-lab study is we can see what your sleep is like, and we can also put you on treatment. And so if you do have sleep apnea, again, mild, moderate, or severe, the other benefit is instead of just monitoring through the night, we can apply airflow, which is the first line therapy called positive airway pressure, or PAP is the acronym. So we apply that, and that is meant to treat sleep apnea. So now we're diagnosing, diagnosing and trying to treat it all in one night, right? And the nice thing is the benefit advantages, we can apply that airflow and we're trying to find the minimum effective amount that prevents that airway collapse and maintains airflow and oxygen. And ideally, you see, get into that deep sleep, that restorative sleep that we, we want, that the body wants. And we can see that that pressure maintains that or achieves that, maintains it. And then we can prescribe that, that device at those settings. So it's kind of an all-in-one if we can do that in lab. So the, the CPAP, um, and I'm sure our listeners probably heard about this before, it's the mask that you put over and then it um, puts, forces air or pumps air into right. your body so that you're getting the adequate oxygen flow and so you're not having that airway collapse, right? And it keeps it open, right? It kind of has a way to keep your airflow. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, there are various masks. I think a lot of people get, um, discouraged because of that idea of wearing something. Um, but there are a lot of different styles of, of mask interfaces. So there is over the nose, under the nose, kind of like a snorkel. So it's less covering you, less bulky. And it kind of just sits either in the nostrils. It's kind of like the oxygen cannulas that you might see people use, right? It's just in each nostril, but with a little more cushion and it just sits in each nostril. And that's how it delivers the airflow. There are ones that kind of go underneath and just have a slit. So it kind of goes across both nostrils instead of like sitting in each one. And then there are the masks that go over the nose and over the nose and mouth. Um, and so we're just trying to find the most comfortable um, mask um, just for the individual, right? And everyone's face is different. Everyone's anatomy is different. So just like getting fitted for shoes or glasses, you just gotta see what fits best. And it's not always the same for everybody. And we're looking, we're looking for a mask that seals well and that can deliver that airflow. And again, that airflow is just from air, right? From uh, the atmosphere. It's just trying to provide enough airflow to prevent that collapse. It's not that um, your lungs are you know, inadequate and that you need more oxygen. It's trying to just keep that airway open to prevent the collapse. Because as long as you can get that air in, your lungs are fine, your oxygen levels are fine. So that's what that airflow is trying to do. We're just trying to find that minimum amount that's going to prevent that collapse and then just with your normal breathing you'll maintain airflow and oxygen and hopefully be able to sleep better and apparently and noli i, I mean I, your husband um you know <laughs> shared with all of us that his life changed when he 
found a really good CPAP and you know I mean his quality of life is a lot better he said better. Um, yeah he did the sleep study I believe it was at Kuwakini uh, um, years ago but it is life-changing and I would 100% recommend getting an assessment getting treatment if you can because actually I want to ask you Dr. Sato how if, do, if there's any studies as how many more years could you extend your life if you do get the assessment and the treatment and the care that you need yeah. Oh, that's an awesome question. Um, I'm not aware of studies that show extension, um, but the risk of developing those cardiovascular uh, events like the stroke and the heart attack, that risk goes down to normal as if you didn't have sleep apnea if you're on treatment. So it's basically saying, hey, we're treating it and you don't have this disorder because now you're maintaining airflow and oxygen, right? So Dr. Sato, do you, for people who are super desperate um, and maybe they don't have sleep apnea, do you advise against taking medication to, to achieve sleep? Um, so this is with non people without sleep apnea. Um, it varies. I think so sleeping aids um, are a tool to try to help someone to get into a routine, right? Uh, and I think when Brooke was asking about the tips, that she kind of highlighted, that's an important one. The regular sleep schedule is important. So not just providing sufficient time, environment, but a routine. Because we're creatures of habit, usually, I mean, you want your brain to know what time to get sleepy and when you're gonna sleep and when you're gonna get up. And like anything, right? We start to develop that kind of internal clock that your body will get used to. Um, when it comes to medications, I'd say number one, so I, I don't oftentimes prescribe that. Um, there are, I think, appropriate times when they could be helpful, but number one, I always wanna make sure, uh, I wanna talk to the person to really dig and figure out, is this insomnia? And right, so when, when it comes to insomnia, it's difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep, but we ruled out any other kind of underlying sleep problem like sleep apnea, right? So. And the only way to know is to, to investigate a little bit more. So I'll ask about snoring and periods where it sounds like you stop breathing. Have you ever been told that? Do you wake up with headaches? All those things. Um, and if you assume, okay, everything checks out, none of those symptoms, or you get a sleep study and no sleep apnea, um, then I'd be more open to it, right? And the reason I don't want to prescribe a medication without kind of really finding out about that is because like we said, what sleep apnea is, it's, it's collapse. And it's because the airway's small. If you use a hypnotic, a sedative that makes you more sleepy and drowsy, well, your brain is trying to fight to breathe. And when we use something that's gonna cause more sedation, it could worsen the problem, right? So you don't wanna just reflexively prescribe a medicine for someone who has trouble staying asleep when it could be worsening the problem. Right? You want to know that it's not because airflow and oxygen levels are dropping and you're fighting to breathe. I'm not going to throw a, a sedative that's going to reduce your brain's ability to fight that, right? To blunt that reflex. So make sure that, you know, it doesn't sound like sleep apnea or something else because the treatments are very specific. Um, but when it comes to insomnia, that trouble falling asleep or staying asleep, um, more important than anything is really optimizing hygiene and habits. Right, making sure that you're, the person is doing all those things we kind of mentioned, um, trying to reduce the naps if possible to really increase that hunger, the drive to sleep, the natural drive, um, not doing the things that are going to be detrimental to sleep, like the, the iPads and the iPhones in bed. And, um, because again, that's a whole nother ball of wax when we're talking about insomnia, right? And so um, if all that was optimized, hygiene, habits, you know, you're not napping, you're going to bed, doing all those um, the practices that we normally want to do to reduce the, your own habits from making it worse, then we can use a hypnotic, right? So again, it's trying to get you into a routine so that you can fall asleep more quickly. There's a certain uh, um, duration that the medications will work, right? And so there's indications for shorter acting ones. If you just need help to fall asleep, or longer acting ones if you need help staying asleep. 
So again, do you want to use the right medicine for the right, you know, indication? Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Um, I think the important thing is not, um, I don't want to miss something that, uh, you know, could be treated much more effectively in a different way. Dr. Sato, I love that, um, that you choose to kind of do like more comprehensive investigation, especially for the insomnia, because I mean, other things like just making sure you have stress management practices that you're trying to employ, um, eliminating alcohol intake, right? That, that totally disrupts sleep. <laughs> right. um, and a lot of people use that to fall asleep, but it makes yeah. your sleep quality worse once alcohol wears off, which is four hours later. And so Deep sleep, good quality, deeper sleep usually is not improved with alcohol, right? People Maybe cutting back on caffeine, sleep. huh? Cutting back on caffeine, for sure. And we always say nothing after lunch. If you have trouble falling asleep or staying asleep, because caffeine can last about 12 hours, right? So I, again, it, everyone's a little different how much it affects them. But if you have trouble falling asleep and staying asleep, that's one of those where I'll say, you know, nothing after lunch, definitely not, you know, tea coffee right none of those things chocolate even i mean some people i've had eat a lot of chocolate oh yeah looks like we've got one but you know you those are the things you want to try to uh to limit to help yourself and those are things that you might be doing that's you know kind of harming your own ability to fall asleep and stay asleep but not even wow realize. you just said all the things i do or <laughs> because like, like, like I think I, I well well it's because I work the night shift right so like my day is different so but then I drink like coffee and tea after the lunchtime but then my day gets started like you know I'm not a nine to five person mine is more like a one to like 11 p.m person right so that I'm and I'm at home when everyone's sleeping then it yeah. takes me time to unwind and all that and yeah, mine is, uh, but yeah, I mean, I'll keep but, that on. Yeah. But Steph, I think that you're also good at <clears throat> under the stress management piece is exercising and moving your body a lot, most days, if not every day, right? I mean, I think that adds to being able to help sleep better too. Yeah. So um, right on in terms of, especially when you're, you have a different schedule, right? That again, is not um, kind of the standard um, up during when the sun comes up and sleeping when the sun goes down but definitely exercise uh, helps to reinforce that that need to kind of recover um, sleep and rebuild so doing that can help especially with the other natural ways that you're trying to you know optimize your sleep schedule routine reinforcing that activity just kind of making your body tired right and also increase that drive to sleep when you want to yeah yeah i think um you know, again, insomnia, there's a lot of other conditions that it's associated with, with right? So there's medical conditions, there's you know, anxiety, depression, there's people who have heart problems and lung problems have increased um, insomnia. As we get older, it's just higher incidence. Women have a little more insomnia than men. Um, yeah, there, there's different associated associations with insomnia, but it's one of the most common Problems, right? Because a lot of it is our habits and what we do, right? And we may not realize that uh, what we're doing is actually negatively affecting our ability to fall asleep and stay asleep. And we do what we need to do to get by, right? We take the naps, caffeinated things. Um, sometimes it's eating or drinking sugary things, but then gain weight. And so again, it, there's all these other kind of downstream effects that we may not realize right is it, are, is it true dr sato that the older you get the less sleep you need because i noticed too and I, i've been noticing this as i when i while i was growing up but like a lot of the elderly like they wake up like super early like you know what, and i feel like yeah. I, I i don't is that gonna happen to, i mean like is that is that, <laughs> is that happening to you right? Right. Yeah, i mean is that i mean is that true or is it just i mean no because seriously like a lot of elderly they wake up like when the sun's not even out yet right or yeah right. Like they're already up something right like, eating toast drinking coffee at mcdonald's right yeah. um but it's uh actually so when they look at that it's natural as we get older to, for your sleep schedule to advance, meaning you wake up earlier, but they also, those people who probably wake up at four in the morning or before the sun rises, they're going to sleep earlier too, right? 
So they're also sleeping at like, you know, 8 p.m. or 7 p.m. So when you look at studies, the sleep schedule just gets earlier, sleep earlier, wake up earlier. And it's also natural to start supplementing um, with a nap sometime in the day. Some of that might be social also, because as you get older, now you don't have to work. So <laughs> some of those, the work requirements, the responsibilities of not being able to nap, right? That goes away. So my retirees, my patients who are retired, they have the worst sleep schedules because they don't have any obligations, right? They don't have to, you know, be at work by a certain time and be there and be awake and alert. So they can just nap and do what they want to do, go outside in the yard, exercise, walk the dog, come back, take a nap again. And, and then they're asking me, why can't they sleep? You know, they're up at one in the morning and they can't stay asleep. And so um, the normal, as we get older, advanced sleep schedule, wake up earlier, sleep earlier, and a little nap. But when you look at the total sleep time, it's about the same as, as uh, an adult when they're younger. Mm. So usually still combined about seven hours or so. And Dr. Sato, um, is it covered by insurance to seek um, sleep medical help? Yeah, definitely. So no matter the insurance, if um, you, know, you, you have any of those um, symptoms, you talk to your doctor, you mention, hey, I'm, I'm more excessively sleepy. So we have certain um, cues as to you know, what's, what's abnormal. And a lot of it, it just depends if somebody doesn't complain to their doctor, you know, they may not ever get help or the doctor may not inquire, you know, more about it. But if you feel more sleepy than you feel like you should, right? You're tired, um, especially after you wake up, you're still tired, you're drowsy, you're not feeling refreshed, you're sleepier during the day and it affects what you, how you feel, what you want to do. Um, that's all, always a, you know, a question. Is it quantity or quality? Um, and of course, the other things that are more specific to, to different kinds of sleep disorders, like we said, snoring, periods where it sounds like you stop breathing, gasping, disruptions in overnight, um, and then unusual leg movements, all these other things. But you mentioned that to your doctor, whether it's a primary care doctor or a specialist, um, those are all appropriate indications to get help, right? So whether that's for your doctor to order a sleep study or to refer you to a specialist and they can order the sleep study, all of that is covered because um, it's appropriate. Yeah, I feel like all this information is so, so valuable, so good. And I think Steph and Brooke and I could ask you a hundred more questions. We might have to have Dr. Sato back on, yeah, guys, because it's so interesting and it just, we're getting to the age where like we want to live longer, we want to live better, we want to be healthier, we want to age well. So all this stuff that you you you've educated us about, it's super helpful. And now I'm thinking of all the people that probably need to go and maybe tell their doctor that they need to maybe get a, more information. Yeah, I mean, um... I'm happy to help out in whatever way I can. Um, I think that's sleep is, is super interesting, right? Because it's one of those areas where it's hard for the person to know. That's the challenge is me. I, I mean, I can't know what my sleep quality is like because you're sleeping. So it's hard for the person to really, um, you know, provide that kind of information, reliable information and even a bed partner, right? Can't know what the sleep quality is like at that time and airflow and oxygen. Um, but we know it affects affects us, our well-being, right? I mean, immunity and recovery, it's helping with cognitive function, mood, um, and we know it affects our length of life, right? And it can, just like good quality sleep can improve those things, not having sufficient sleep or good quality sleep can affect us negatively. Right. And so again, quality of life and then these other serious health conditions. And so um, it's just one of those things that we, I think we focus a lot on diet. We focus a lot on exercise, but oftentimes sleep gets um, looked past, right? I mean, we don't think about uh, is the sleep sufficient? Is the quality right? optimal? Mm -hmm. So all animals, you know, need to eat 
to drink, need to breathe, I need to sleep. But sleep is definitely the, the last thing that we think about in terms of optimizing our overall health, health and wellness, right? But we know it's it's very important now. So it's good if when people are interested in trying to really um, optimize that, I'm you know I'm happy to help. Yep, and uh, it's it's pretty common, just as Dr. Sato said. And uh, I mean, look at us, the three of us, and I, our husbands are already have have done the whole sleep study and all that stuff. So, people listening, if you you know, like, oh my goodness, this kind of resonates, and I think that this is happening to my loved one or my friend. I heard them complaining about this. Let them know that this service is available to them, but they are super busy. So um, you guys are going to have to call to make an appointment. Uh, so if you would like a sleep evaluation, you can call the Kuakini Pulmonary Sleep Center at 808-547-9119. Again, that's 808-547-9119 during weekday business hours. And there's a, I don't know if there's a wait list, Dr. Sato, but. It's actually, um, it's not bad. I think um, might be one or two weeks. The sleep center is open six days, six nights a week. Um, and right now we're, we can have up to three patients uh, a night. And that's just in the sleep center, right? The home studies, um, we have a bunch of those that, you know, when, when, when appropriate. We can provide that and if people are doing the home studies um that's a lot easier to turn those around um get it to the patient wear it overnight bring it back we clean it um sterilize it and we're getting those out you know in just kind of a rotation and so it's the in-lab studies that might take a little more time because you know certain amount of staff but uh i think the wait's only one or two weeks it's just oh. it's more trying to find Right. Um, that night that works well for, for yep. each individual, right? Finding a night that works well and mm -hmm. um, spending wow. the night. For those of you who, um, my main concern when my husband went was I didn't want to be, I thought it was going to be super noisy, the machine, or that I was going to be sleeping next to like Darth Vader at night. <laughs> but I can tell you, I highly recommend going just to get the test out. It's actually really quiet, the machine he has. So it's quieter than pre-CPAP machine. Right. Um, yeah, so but, I just want to bust that myth because that was something I was actually concerned about. I highly recommend it. And you can travel with it. It's portable. So like, I think they make exactly. ones for traveling. So it's like, you don't have to be without it. And I think the main, uh, you know, important part of the reason why, you know, you shouldn't wait is because of the health reasons and the fact that it really increases quality of life. I mean, just based on, you know, what I've heard from, you know, like all the people that have gotten the CPAPs. Um, it's really good to know that this help is available, Dr. Sato. And um, I know that you're a busy man. Thank you so much for you know making the time to be on this podcast because we all felt that it's such a common thing. We're, I, I mean, every, I almost feel like everybody I talk to is like, oh, me too, I got the CPAP. Oh my God, I have to do the sleep study. I'm like, oh my gosh. It's like, why yeah. is this happening? You know, and- yeah. Go to the airports, people traveling, they got their CPAPs on their shoulders. You know, it doesn't count as a hand carry as one of those things. And yeah, they're, you know, the airports are pretty But you know, actually, and, and not to prolong the conversation because I know that this kind of gone on long, but, you know, because we have kids, right? Is it true that they're already um, doing preventative measures for kids that they, because you can get it at any age, I'm sure. But I mean, later in life is when you get diagnosed because you're more like aware, like, ah, I'm so tired, but kids can't really vocalize, right? But then yeah. is it true that like you can diagnose kids now too, right? And like, I feel yeah. like, yep. And, yeah. Yep, so you can. So kids can have sleep apnea um, because their airways can be small, um, big tonsils, right? So, but they're still growing. So their anatomy hasn't set yet. But in kids, they might manifest with sleep, being sleepy, needing to nap. Um, but a lot of times they have this paradoxical kind of hyperactivity, right? Mm -hmm. So with kids, when they're tired, they kind of get more wild and difficult to control, right? So if they're having that chronically where they're not, not getting good quality sleep, then it can affect their behavior, it can affect their performance in school. So now those can kind of be um, flags for if they don't have the snoring, right? They don't have the gasping and they sound like they stop breathing, they might. But 
Now their symptoms are a little different. They're tired, performance, behavior, attention. There's an association with sleep apnea in kids with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So there's a pretty good percentage of, patients, of children with sleep apnea. And you know what? I, I've seen them wear the nose strip. It's just like the this like a simple nose strip. Oh no! It, like it opens the airway. But then, but then I think that's the reason why it came to that conversation. Sorry if I outed you if you're listening, but then because I saw the the kid wearing that. Like, oh, what's that for? And the oh, also, yeah. So it, yeah, it's, and it's a player one. Yeah, yeah, and and you just put it on, and apparently it like yeah open up the nasal passage, but but sleep apnea the, the collapses further downstream, right? So it helps with nasal breathing, the breathe right strips. So if people have kind of collapsible um, nasal valves, but it doesn't treat the, the main obstruction, which is further back, right? So um, tell your friend that if it's not working, oh, they didn't, I didn't hear it from you, but you know, the, their CPAPs, um, but for kids, the treatments are, because they're still growing, the hope is that they can still open up their airway. They can still maximize things before it's too late. So the treatments, the first-line treatments are a little different. It's taking out tonsils if they're, they're big, adenoids, um, palatal expanders. I don't know if you've seen that where they kind of anchor into the palate and use the teeth to stimulate maximizing the growth of the palate. Because again, that's something we want to try to do so that once they hit puberty and they stop growing, that's going to get fixed. And now then the, the best alternative is CPAP. So you want to try to avoid that if, if possible. For adults, that's first line because they're not growing anymore. Um, but for kids, it's a little bit different. And optimizing um, nasal allergies, congestion, because being a mouth, kids who mouth breathe, uh, then it can affect their anatomy such that the, the nasal passage doesn't open up as much, which again, makes them continue to mouth breathe, but the development of the palate is affected when kids mouth breathe. Mm -hmm. So that can predispose them to sleep apnea as well. So, yep. Yep. so sorry to all of our listeners out there. I know you guys wanted that, that one magic potion that could just, you know, wipe <laughs> away all your questions about how you can get more Stop sleep. The snoring. You wish that you could just go into a, a pod and lock yourself in there and just get it right like that. Maybe that's in the, yep. the future. But for now, as far as what we heard, it really like takes you, you know, setting that routine, um, you know, avoiding the bad habits, like drinking alcohol, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, cutting back on your caffeine, um, and yeah, maybe even writing it down, like a schedule, right? So and follow it so that you know that you should be to sleep at this time. Don't eat before this time. Shut off all yeah. devices at this time. You know, right. so it's it, it takes a lot of work if you are searching for good sleep, and it also takes getting checked out if you meet those uh, symptoms. If you have those, right? So, right. anything else you guys want to add, Nolene Brooke? Just thank you for I, all that info, yeah. Doctor. That was awesome. awesome. Yeah, okay. thank you so much because I, I agree that sleep is something that we don't talk about enough. So we probably have to have you on again because yeah. I know there's more we can all talk about, but I, I think it's important that we, we spend time and, and really focusing on this. I really think it's one of the pillars that have to be focused on for all of us to be well. And everyone, you know, if you care about someone or for yourself, if, if you're suspecting that maybe you have sleep apnea or just insomnia, just go get checked out. Super important. The better you are, the better you can be to, to the ones that you love, right? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So go see Dr. Sato. Thank you so much. And um, hope we didn't uh, talk you to sleep. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. That was, um, <laughs> it was a nice way to, um, you know, be able to try to help people. Um, it, you know, I, I like when I'm able to share uh, some of these things with definitely people who are interested. And I think um, we sleep disorders are still just so underdiagnosed and it's just people may not be aware of you know things that they're observing that goes on in their their lives with their sleep and their activities may not realize um it could be a symptom or something that could be improved on um and sometimes it's the things that we're doing that might make it worse right so 
I think those are um, I think the important points that um, I wanted to emphasize to try to help people. And then again, yeah, if there's any questions, um, I'm available. Um, you know, I work at um, the lab at Kuakini, the director there. So um, I'm a resource for, for people, for patients as well. Yeah, just don't call him when he's sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. My phone's going to be off. We far away from me. Far away. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Sato, for getting the word out and raising awareness about this really important topic of getting sleep and a challenge to all of our listeners out there. Start today and, you know, good luck. Good luck chasing those Z's. And I hope that you guys, um, you know, finally achieve it and get a restful night of sleep. Thank you so much for listening, everybody, to Mothership and have a good night. And good day your shift you. worker. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Yes.